We're in our main message series called I Am Jesus, which is on the life of Jesus, going through all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in chronological order, because we want to see in the Word of God for ourselves who Jesus was, what he really said, what he really did, what he really taught. And last week, as we mentioned, we got to listen in as Jesus taught his disciples again how to pray, and he affirmed that what mattered most was the heart. Is your heart engaged? It's not the length of your prayers, it's the strength of your prayers. And we were reminded that little prayers can have big power. This week, Jesus is going to continue to teach us about the area of prayer by moving into a realm that's commonly referred to as spiritual Warfare, spiritual warfare. Today is going to be interesting. If you're not familiar with this term, spiritual warfare deals with this question. If Satan is real, if his demons are real, and they really do desire to bring about destruction in our lives, how should we respond to this reality? What are we supposed to do with this knowledge as believers? How you answer that question is what spiritual warfare is all about. It's a big question. It can be a scary question. If you come from certain church traditions or movements, you may have heard and seen some crazy stuff done in the name of spiritual warfare. I grew up going to Pentecostal churches, and I've shared this before. So if you grew up Pentecostal, you didn't have ghost stories as a kid. You had demon stories as a kid. And every camp you went to every summer, there wasn't a story about the serial killer who lived out in the woods with a chainsaw. There was a story about a kid who knew a kid who turned into a snake on the floor because he was demon-possessed last year. And the whole cabin saw it, but none of them were at camp this year. That's how you grew up if you were Pentecostal. Or maybe you're thinking of the exorcist when you hear this term. You're thinking of a little girl crawling on the wall with a spinning head barfing green slime. Whatever your view is, you're going to be blessed and encouraged by what Jesus has to say to us today in his word. It's going to bring some clarity to what is often a very foggy subject. So let's jump in. We're in Luke chapter 11, and we're going to pick it up in verse 14. Speaking of Jesus, it says, And he was casting out a demon... And it was mute. So there is a person who is demon-possessed, and the presence of this demon has made the person mute, unable to speak. And just to point out the obvious, if the reason for this person's muteness is demonic possession, we can probably agree that in this case, there's no medical solution to this problem. There's no anti-demon drops you can take that's going to solve the issue. In this particular case. So we read on and it says, So it was when the demon had gone out that the mute spoke and the multitudes marveled. You may recall from previous studies, the reason people find this so amazing is that there were Jewish exorcists around at that time. A lot of them were frauds and charlatans, but there were some who were using the name of God to really exorcise demons out of people. But they had a very strict protocol, and one of the first steps in their protocol, much like a Catholic priest would have a protocol today for exorcisms, one of their first steps was to ask the demon to identify itself by name. So if a person was mute, they couldn't answer that question, and the protocol would cease, and the person would be considered beyond help. So enter into this now Jesus 
who on this occasion and two others heals a person who is demonically possessed and mute, something nobody has ever seen before or been able to do before. That's why it says the multitudes marveled at this particular miracle of Jesus. Some legalistic Jews, some Jewish religious leaders, held their exorcists in especially high regard. They were almost like celebrities. They took great pride in the fact that in their system, their legal system of a million different rules, they even had a system for how you should cast a demon out of someone. And so when Jesus shows up without any of their credentials, without a degree from any of their seminaries, healing people outside of their system, not following their protocol, well, let's just say a lot of them don't like it. Verse 15, but some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. Beelzebub was just a, a Jewish name for Satan. It means Lord of the Flies. And I kind of like that. They didn't give Satan an epic title like Lord of the Darkness. They gave him Lord of the Flies. And you remember that this is an accusation that the religious leaders have made before, accusing Jesus of having power over demons because he himself is in league with their leader, Satan. They're not only saying that Jesus is not the Messiah, they're not just saying he's not God in the flesh, they're saying he's really the complete opposite. He's a messenger of Satan empowered by Satan. Which, if you're not familiar with the term blasphemy, would be the very definition of blasphemy, basically. In verse 16 we read, Others testing him sought from him a sign from heaven. And these guys drive me crazy because these same stubborn people who just saw Jesus do what nobody else had ever done, heal a demonically possessed mute person, are now saying right after it's happened, show us a sign. If you've ever had small children, then you understand this frustration to a degree because sometimes I'll tell my young boys not to do something. I will tell them again, and I will tell them again. And sometimes right after I've told them again not to do that thing, I will find them doing that thing. Those are the moments when as a dad, I may or may not have yelled out on more than one occasion, is anybody listening to anything I say ever? Am I just a crazy person talking to people who aren't there? Jesus had incredible self-control, so he didn't do that. But he must have felt the frustration of, you were right here when I healed that person. And now you want a sign? You want a sign? What's amazing is that what they're really saying in the original language is, well, we saw you heal this demon-possessed person that nobody else could. We've seen you perform many other miracles, but we want you to do something really big. Make, make a mountain appear. Move the stars in the sky right in front of us. Do something really spectacular. Then we'll believe. Then we'll believe. But as we all know, for those who demand a sign, no sign will ever be enough. In verse 17 we read, but he, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, which is crazy to me, the Holy Spirit enables Jesus to understand what they were thinking and where their hearts were at that moment. And Jesus understood the issue is not a lack of signs or evidence, the issue is their hard hearts. They simply refused to believe and would continue to refuse to believe regardless of what he said or did. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against a house falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Because you say, I cast out demons by Beelzebub. Again, Jesus points out that when they make this accusation that he's empowered by Satan, 
their accusation doesn't even make sense. Why in the world would Satan give Jesus the power to undo the work of Satan on the earth? It, it doesn't make any sense. Thank goodness that people today no longer believe in things that don't make sense just because it's what they want to believe. Verse 19, he says, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, then by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. So not only does their argument not make sense, but Jesus points out their hypocritical double standard by saying, how come you don't accuse your own exorcists of using the power of Satan to cast out demons? Why do you believe they're doing it by the power of God, but I'm empowered by Satan? So make a note of this. Jesus points out their argument is illogical and hypocritical. It's illogical and hypocritical. A lot of these Jewish exorcists, as we read, were frauds and charlatans. And if you want an example of that, you can look up what happened to a group of them known as the sons of Sceva in Acts chapter 19 this week. When Jesus says, therefore, they will be your judges, he's just saying, they're going to serve as evidence against you when you're judged in eternity because you have approved of them and most of them are frauds, but you've condemned me who is truthful and is really doing this by the power of God. Verse 20, and I want you to underline this first part here. But if I cast out demons with the finger of God, I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Don't you love that? God doesn't deal with Satan in a wrestling contest. They're not trading blows going back and forth. It's, it's the finger of God, the way you would flick an ant off your arm. That's the analogy Jesus is giving. In contrast to the Jewish exorcists at the time who would yell and stomp their feet and wave their hands and make a big show of the thing in the hopes of getting God's attention, in contrast to that, Jesus would just say to the demon, I command you to leave. And that's it. Finger of God. Flick. So hear me on this. And this is your next fill-in. This is not a commentary on Satan's lack of power but rather God's overwhelming power, the almighty God that you and I serve. This is not to make the point that Satan is not powerful. It's to make the point that God is overwhelmingly powerful. The reason we don't fear Satan is not because he's not powerful. He is powerful. You need to know that. And Jesus himself is authenticating that Satan is indeed real. He is opposed to God. He desires the destruction of men, and he has an organized kingdom of demons. Jesus believes in the devil. Jesus believes in demons. The reason we don't fear Satan is not because he's not powerful. The only reason we don't tremble before Satan is because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. That blows my mind because it means that the power of the Holy Spirit that resides in you and I, not the Holy Spirit out there or, or the Holy Spirit up there, the Holy Spirit in here, in you, in me, that Holy Spirit, the presence of God, the amount of the Holy Spirit that is in you is greater and stronger and more powerful than Satan on his best day. That's staggering. That's an incredible concept. The only reason Satan does not terrify us is because he is terrified of our God. And our God never leaves or forsakes us. Jesus says the kingdom of God has come upon you. And, and this is the issue. Jesus shines a light on what's really going on here. If, if none of their arguments make sense, 
And if all the evidence points to Jesus being empowered by God the Father, then there's some serious implications. This is a basic logic deduct deduction. It's the art of reasoning. These are premises. So if Jesus, premise number one, is doing these things by the power of God, then he is approved of by God. Then everything he's saying is true. He really is the Messiah. And his criticism of the Jewish leaders comes from God the Father. They really do need to repent. There are some serious implications if they are willing to admit that Jesus is doing this by the power of God. And this is a group that does not want to deal with those realities. So they simply refuse to believe what Jesus says, even in the face of all of the evidence. It's no different today. The reason people reject Jesus is because they do not want to deal with the implications of Jesus being God or the Bible being true. It gets in the way of how they want to live their lives. Then and now, it doesn't matter if the kingdom of God, Jesus in the flesh, comes and stands among us. Some people are going to be simply unwilling to believe because they don't want to deal with the consequences of Jesus being God and the Bible being true. And sadly, these men fall into that category. Verse 21, Jesus says, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. Jesus is continuing to explain very logically how it is that he's able to cast demons out of somebody, even if they're a mute. So far, Jesus has pointed out that he casts out demons without any theatrics, just by the finger of God. In other words, effortlessly. He's pointed out he can't be doing this by the power of Satan because Satan's not going to work to destroy the work of Satan. He's pointed out that the ease with which he casts out demons proves that the kingdom of God has come among them. In other words, he really is God in the flesh. He's the Messiah. Now Jesus is going to point this out. Write this down. The only explanation for his authority and power over demons is that he is the greater authority and power. The only explanation for his authority and power over demons is that he is the greater authority and power. Jesus says when a strong man guards his house with weapons and armor, no one's really going to mess with what's in the house. The only way that's going to happen is if someone even stronger than that man shows up and is able to overpower him, bind him up, then that stronger man can go into the house and take what he wants. Here's what Jesus is saying. Satan is powerful and Satan is strong. But God is more powerful and God is stronger. So when God's kingdom comes into direct conflict with Satan's kingdom, there is no battle. Satan's forces are simply bound up and the Lord is able to take what he wants from Satan. And what he wants is that person to be set free spiritually and brought into his family. And this doesn't just apply to demonic possession. This happened for each of us at the moment of salvation. Satan owned us. He had full right to us. He owned the title deed to your life and my life. And all we did was cry out, help. Help. And in response, Jesus came into our lives. He bound up the power of sin over our lives and he set us free. We were not stronger than the power of sin in our lives. We were not stronger than Satan. We were helplessly doomed until the stronger one, Jesus Messiah, showed up and saved us. 
This next verse is so, so important because our our culture and our world wants to believe that Jesus is Mr. Peace and Political Correctness. The verse we're about to read in verse 23 says what it says. It's not translated incorrectly or out of context. The words come from Jesus himself. Jesus says, he who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. Now this is interesting because we're in Luke eleven twenty three. Just a short while ago in Luke nine fifty, I put it on your outlines, Jesus said this, he who is not against us is on our side. Now here in chapter 11, we hear Jesus say, he who is not with me is against me. Are you picking up the difference between those two statements? In chapter nine, all people needed to do was just not be against Jesus. Now in chapter 11, Jesus says, that's not enough. You need to be with me. Is he contradicting himself? No, he's not. Make a note of this. He's simply saying that nobody can stay neutral indefinitely. Nobody can stay neutral indefinitely. At some point, you have received enough opportunities and revelation that you are forced into a decision. And at that time, not making a decision is a decision. Earlier, they were given time to decide. Later, they had seen enough and heard enough to receive Jesus, and by choosing not to, they were choosing to be against him. They had seen Jesus cast demons out of people who were mute and blind. They had seen the miracles. They had heard Jesus preach the kingdom of God and explain to them how the evidence proved he was the Son of God, the Messiah. They were forced to decide either Jesus was in league with Lucifer or he really was the kingdom of God in the flesh. Nobody can stay neutral forever. Everybody has to make a choice. Everybody. And these men were making a choice to say that everything they were seeing, demons cast out, lives made whole, physical healing, all of it was being done by the power of Satan. They were making their choice. They were now against Jesus. These are shocking and divisive words. He who is not with me is against me. There's no purgatory. In eternity, there are only those who were with Jesus and those who were against Jesus. This is why finding salvation through Jesus is so urgent. Being an enemy of God, being against Jesus is not a place you want to hang out in. It's not a place you want to be. And Jesus doesn't say, he who is not with me or Muhammad or Buddha or whatever your thing is. Jesus says, he who is not with me, Jesus. If you're not with Jesus, you have lined up against Jesus. It's as serious as it sounds, and I don't want to say anything to diminish that. Now follow the flow as Jesus continues to speak. He's just explained that he, God, is powerful enough to go into anyone's life, bind up Satan, bind up sin, and set their spirit free, but that's not where the process ends. Having your spirit set free means that the power of sin's been broken in your life. Jesus can free you from an addiction. He can work a miracle in your life to help you break destructive habits, thoughts, and behaviors. He can help you clean up your life, but that's not what is ultimately gonna set you free, solve your problems, or meet your deepest needs. It's not about reformation. It's not about being a neat and tidy person. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 24. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, 
he goes through dry places seeking rest. And finding none, he says, I will return to my house from which I came. Jesus is describing a person who's been set free from demonic oppression and had their life cleaned up. And he tells us that the demons that were destroying that person's life after being forced out of that person wander around for a while and then they think, I wonder how he's doing. I wonder how she's doing. You know, old habits die hard. Maybe I'll swing by for a visit and see if an opportunity is presenting itself. Verse 25, and when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. What does the demon find? He finds the person reformed. Their life has been cleaned up. Everything looks better. It's neat and tidy. Maybe the addiction is gone. They're holding down a good job. Now they're forming good relationships. They're staying away from people in places that lead them astray. Maybe they're even going to church every Sunday. They are reformed. Even at this time in history, some of these Jewish exorcists, as we said, really were able to name drop God and cast out demons. However, if that exorcism is not joined with the gospel, leading that person to Jesus, there can be serious, serious consequences, which is why it gets scary now in verse 26. Then he, the demon, goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that man is worse than the first. So what's going on? This is deeply, deeply troubling. But it's very simple. Every single one of our lives, like a hotel, has a sign that is lit up and either says vacancy or no vacancy. And the man in Jesus' story has cleaned up his life, his house, but his house has no occupant. Jesus has not been invited in. He's not been invited to dwell, to live in that man. And as a result, the demon returned to find the light on the man's house lit up saying, vacancy. This is an empty house. You see, salvation and true deliverance is not the result of reformation, but regeneration. Salvation and true deliverance is not the result of getting cleaned up. It's the result of being made new. When Nicodemus met with Jesus to find out who he really was and what a man must really do to be saved, did Jesus say, Nicodemus, you must clean up your life. You must get rid of all your bad habits. What did Jesus say? He said, you must be born again. You must be born again. Jesus said, you must invite me into your life forever. And when you do, I'll turn on the no vacancy sign for your life. I'll dwell with you. And if I'm living in you, I will go about bringing healing and wholeness and freedom to every area of your life. I'll never give up on you. I'll never stop that good work in your life until the day you die and that work is complete in your life. Write this down. We don't need reformation. We need regeneration. We need regeneration. And I want to go back to something and, and hammer it a bit more because it's so important. And this really might change your paradigm, your idea of spiritual warfare forever. It might change how you think about this. There's no struggle or war between God and Satan. None. As Jesus said when he was on the earth, he's able to cast out demons with the finger of God because he is the stronger, greater, more powerful authority. Never forget that when Satan rallied a third of the angels to rebel against God and try and take over heaven, Jesus, the Father, the Spirit did not even get in the fight. They just dispatched Michael, the archangel, 
to throw Satan and his minions out of heaven. They didn't even get off the throne for that fight. It's not a fight that's even worthy of them. And it's the greatest fight that has ever been attempted in the history of eternity. There's no contest. This is not a yin and yang situation. God and Satan are not different sides of the same coin. They're not opposites. There's no comparison. There's no chart of comparison that you could put Satan and God on because they are so far apart and God is so incomparable. He can't be compared to anything. If you took a chart the size of the universe, there wouldn't be a place for Satan to be put to compare to God. In very Pentecostal churches to this day, they'll still do what Jewish exorcists would do. They'd make a big show of battling the darkness as though what really scares demons is shouting. We all know how sensitive their hearing is. Or stomping your feet or waving your hands or talking in a weird voice. Devil come out. No way. Devil come out. (gasps) But the problem is we never see Jesus doing that. What we see in Jesus is a man at peace fully confident in the power of his father, fully confident in the supremacy of his father's power, calmly commanding demons to leave a person. That's what real power and authority looks like. Do you realize there is no biblical account anywhere of Jesus sneaking away in prayer to pray against Satan? There's no record of Jesus praying against the spiritual strongholds over Jerusalem or Tyre and Sidon, or any of the cities that rejected him. And yet today, in every city pretty much in the world, there's some in our city, there are churches and believers who believe that we should be walking around praying against spiritual forces over our city. It sounds nice, but here's my question. This is my question. Is it biblical? Is it in the Bible anywhere? And I want to challenge you with that question because the Gospels in my Bible don't record Jesus ever doing that. The book of Acts in my Bible doesn't record the early church ever doing that. None of the letters, none of the epistles in my Bible record commands to believers to ever do that. I haven't found that anywhere in my Bible. So make a note of this. There's no biblical precedent for engaging with Satan or demons in prayer or intercession. And let me be clear about this. What I mean by this is seeking it out. There's no biblical precedent for engaging with Satan or demons in prayer or intercession. So there's nowhere in the Bible where believers intentionally go and seek having a conversation with demons. Go walking around and say, I'm going out to pray against, to speak to the demonic forces over this city. It's not in the Bible. The closest you might get is the temptation of Christ in the wilderness. But let me ask you, why is Jesus in the wilderness? Is he seeking Satan? He's seeking the Lord. He's in prayer. And when Satan shows up, does Jesus converse with him? What does he do? He only answers Satan with what? Scripture. Scripture. I would suggest to you that Jesus is speaking to himself as much as he's speaking to Satan. Just as he expects us in those moments to remind ourselves of the word of God. Do you know why there's no biblical precedent for praying against demons? Do you know why? Because the Lord doesn't want our attention to be on Satan. The Lord wants our attention to be on him. Make a note of that. 
He doesn't want our attention to be on Satan. He wants our attention to be on him. What do you think the father would have preferred? His son Jesus to take time out of his day to converse and argue and fight in prayer with Satan or spend time with him? What do you think the father would have wanted? There's no question. When Jesus is being crucified and he prays from the cross, does he pray, Satan, I command you to stop blinding these people. Spirit of hard-heartedness, I cast you out. What does he pray? He prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. There's a verse I go back to over and over and over again. Are you scared? Are you fearful? Are you, even if, if you're feeling oppressed by demonic forces, whatever it is, 1 Peter 5, 7 says we're to cast all, all of our cares upon him, the Lord, because he cares for us. The solution to fear or spiritual issues is never to engage with Satan or demons. It's to go to the Lord. There's nowhere in the Bible where it says if you're feeling demonically oppressed, you need to tackle that demon in prayer. It says cast that care upon the Lord. Why? Because I don't know if you've noticed, but, but he's the stronger one. He's the stronger one. You don't belong in that fight. You got no business being in that fight. You belong with your father. He's the stronger one. In the Old Testament, in the book of Daniel, we read about Daniel praying and seeking the Lord. It's an incredible story. About 21 days later, three weeks later, he has this incredible vision where he's visited by Michael the archangel. And what Michael tells Daniel is fascinating. He says, Daniel, I want you to know your prayers were heard by God the first day you started praying. But here's the thing. I was delayed because there is a powerful demon over Babylon, the geographic area. It's a place that was really the center and the birthplace of paganism in the world. Satan worship, essentially. It's a stronghold of Satan to this day. And Michael says, listen, I'm here. It took me a little while. Had to make my way through a couple of tackle attempts. This is really where Christians gain the understanding that Satan has an organized kingdom and, and he has demons assigned to geographic areas over specific cities and locations. In the book of Daniel, it even tells us this demon was known as the Prince of Persia. So many believers have read that and said, okay, so, so what we should do is we should pray against the specific demons that have been assigned to our cities. The problem is that's not what Daniel is doing when Michael comes to him. He's not praying against the demonic forces over Babylon. And after Michael visits him and he learns about this demon, the prince of Persia, there's no record that Daniel begins to change the way that he prays and says, with this new knowledge, I can now pray by name against the prince of Persia. He doesn't do that. He keeps seeking the Lord, praying to the Lord. The Bible tells us we need to be aware of Satan and his forces, we need to remember that there's always more going on behind the scenes than we can perceive with our eyes. The Bible tells us to remember there's always spiritual dynamics in play, but the Bible never instructs us to confront Satan in prayer. It's always going to the Lord. The Bible and Jesus always teach that our concerns and our fears should be taken to our Heavenly Father, to the Lord who loves us. Focusing on Satan is never going to lift your burdens, and it's never going to strengthen your faith. You know, when you walk into a dark room 
You can try and round kick the darkness. You can stomp and you can shout at the darkness. You can sing songs at the darkness. Or you can turn on the light switch and the darkness flees. Because where there's light, there's no room for darkness. Satan doesn't deserve your attention. The Lord deserves your attention. The spiritual warfare strategy you need to employ in your life is this. Are you, you ready? This is the strategy for dealing with the darkness, dealing with Satan and his demons. This is the strategy. Stay close to Jesus. Stay close to Jesus. That's it. Just like if you were in school, you were the small kid always getting bullied, and one day this massive freak of a kid who looks like he's on steroids shows up and says, I want to be your best friend. You're going to be his best friend. You're not going to go learn karate. You're just going to stay real close to your friend. That's the Christian strategy for spiritual warfare. Stay close to Jesus. He's the strong one. He's the mighty one. Where he is, you're not going to be demonically oppressed. That's not going to go on if you're staying close to him. If you're feeling that way, you need to press into Jesus. You don't need to get into a fight with Satan and his demons. You need to press into Jesus and let him do the fighting. Your God loves you. He's with you. His spirit is in you. The word says his spirit that's in you is greater than Satan. Stay close to him. Focus on him. He's the one who deserves your attention. He's the one who deserves your attention. Verse 27. And it happened as he spoke these things that a certain woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts which nursed you. At this time in the world, as always, people were really into worshiping the mother entity. So whenever someone came along, people wanted to know who's their mom so that they could elevate and often deify her, turn her into a god and worship her. That's what's going on here. A woman in the crowd cries out, your mother must be extra special, elevated. She's got to be something more than a normal person. I just need you to know, I don't go looking for this stuff. This just comes up in the text. I'm not looking for trouble. It's just there. So I don't want to name any names. But I want you to think of the world's largest institution where that type of thinking is central to everything they do and teach and practice. Are you thinking of this particular institution? We're not mentioning any names. So with that in mind, let's read for ourselves directly from God's word how Jesus responds to this suggestion. Verse 28. But he said, and underline these three words, more than that, or however your Bible says it, more than that, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Jesus doesn't let it go. He doesn't let it slide. He doesn't say, cool. He doesn't say, that's my mom. He feels the need to address and correct this perspective. It's as though Jesus is being led by the Holy Spirit to understand, if I don't correct this view right here and now, my followers are going to read about this in the Bible in years to come. And if I don't correct this right now, they could get caught up in some crazy thinking like, I don't know, that my mom should be worshipped and prayed to. So I better address this right now in the Bible myself. The original language translation would actually be no, rather, 
Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Or on the contrary, not that, but this. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. You want to know how to be blessed, says Jesus? It's not by looking to my mother, it's by looking to me. You are blessed by hearing my words, taking in my words and responding to my words. And you know what? Jesus' mom agrees. What makes Mary such a wonderful example of a believing woman is the fact that her whole life, everything she believes about herself and her son Jesus is summed up in the last words the Bible ever records her saying. The wedding in Cana, John chapter 2. The last recorded words of Mary in the Bible are Mary saying to the servants about Jesus, whatever he says to you, do it. And then we never hear from Mary again. Jesus is the road that leads to being blessed, not Mary. That's what Jesus taught, and that's what Mary believed. Do you remember this interaction from Luke 8? I put it on your outline. And it was told to him, Jesus, by some, who said, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered and said to them, my mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. And do it. It's what the Bible says. Verse 29. And while the crowds were thickly gathered together, he began to say, this is an evil generation. He's just warming up the crowd. This is an evil generation. It seeks a sign and no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. For as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. In Matthew 12, 40, where Jesus repeats this statement, he adds this detail. It's on your outline. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Side note, do the math. Good Friday is not the day Jesus died. There's no way to get three days and three nights between Friday and Sunday. That's just a side note. As we all know, Jesus doesn't give signs to people who ask for signs. He doesn't do tricks on command like a monkey so that man can judge him. Hmm, I don't know if that measures up or not. So Jesus responds, hey guys, the only sign I'm going to give is the sign of Jonah. I'm going to be lowered into the depths for three days, presumed dead for three days, presumed lost forever, only to emerge alive three days later. That's the only sign I'm going to give to those of you who want something truly epic. I'm going to rise from the dead. Hopefully that will do. You know, our faith swings on the hinge of the resurrection. I read a very interesting article just a couple of days ago that pointed this out. You know, Christianity is the only religion that's really historically verifiable. Every other religion follows this model. It's one person who shows up and said, me alone by myself have received this special revelation. Now I'm telling you about it. Me alone by myself had this special experience, this encounter, this visitation. Now I'm telling you about it. It's always them recounting something that happened to them that nobody else saw or witnessed. Jesus came, lived on the earth, was seen by countless people, had a public ministry full of miracles and signs and wonders for three years, observed by hundreds of thousands of people. He was publicly crucified in front of thousands of witnesses, dead in a tomb guarded by 16 soldiers for three days, publicly. 
rose from the dead, was seen by countless people. And those countless people who saw the miracle went and told other people about it. It's different to every other religion. Christianity was birthed by the hundreds of people who witnessed the miracle. It's different to everything else. Our faith swings on the hinge of the resurrection. You know, we can talk with people about intelligent design. We can talk about biblical archaeological findings, the inward conscience of man, and all the other philosophical evidences for God. But really, the only question that matters if you're really seeking the truth is this. Did Jesus rise from the dead? Because if he did, nothing else matters. Everything else he said must be true. It's the one sign Jesus said he would give to a stubborn, hard-hearted generation, and certainly our generation fits under that description. If there's one thing worth talking to people about, it's that Jesus rose from the dead, just like he said he would, proving that everything else he said is true. If he didn't, where is the body? How could the mighty Roman Empire with all of its resources not locate the body of Jesus? If it was all a lie, why did all the disciples except John, who they tried to kill by boiling him alive in oil, choose to be martyred? Murdered for their belief that Jesus was alive. It was not a belief that made them rich, but cost them their lives, caused them endless persecution and pain and loss. And yet to a man Sometimes being tortured to death, they died saying, I cannot deny what I know is the truth. Jesus is alive. How do you explain the empty tomb? How do you explain a body disappearing under the watch of 16 Roman soldiers? How could anyone have stolen the body? How do you explain Jesus' death being observed by countless witnesses and certified by a Roman soldier whose only job was to ensure that men were dead before their bodies were taken down from the cross. All those who sincerely seek the truth, all those who seriously examine the evidence with a desire to know the truth, cannot deny this. We serve a risen Savior. Jesus is alive. Write this down. When asked for a sign to prove he was God, Jesus pointed to his resurrection. His resurrection. The world gets one sign. The sign of Jonah. Jesus rose from the dead. Verse 31, Jesus says, The queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. Jesus is referring to the famed Queen of Sheba who traveled a great distance for an audience with King Solomon. Having heard of his legendary wisdom and spirituality, she put in the effort to journey and just meet him in person. She just wanted to be in his presence and have an audience with him. That's all she wanted. Jesus is saying that's what she, a Gentile, non-Jewish queen, did for Solomon. And there's one far greater than Solomon standing right in front of you right now. You should respond accordingly. You know, Solomon had wise things to say, but the problem was he didn't actually do them. Proverbs has great advice about marriage. So does Song of Solomon. But Solomon had over 700 wives and 300 concubines. 
And his kids were a wreck. Jesus taught wisdom and truth, and then he actually lived out what he taught. He actually did it. Verse 32, Jesus says, The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. Those Gentile men of Nineveh, whom Jonah so reluctantly preached to, they didn't get a message of grace. This is the message that they got. It's 40 days until God kills you all because of your wickedness. That's all they got. And with that, they repented and said, maybe God will change his mind if we repent. And God did. Jesus says, I've healed the sick. I've cast out demons. I've taught publicly. I've refuted every attempt by you to try and catch me in sin. There's one greater than Jonah here right now, and you have seen far more than the Ninevites ever saw. You should respond accordingly. Parenthetically, it's interesting to note that Jesus clearly regarded Jonah being in the belly of the fish to be a factual account. He didn't think it was a myth or a fairy tale. In both the example of the Ninevites and the Queen of Sheba, Jesus is actually insulting these Jews by pointing out, hey, even these Gentiles, the ones who weren't supposed to be able to get it, they got it. And they got it with a lot less than you. There's so much more than they ever got standing right in front of you right now. And you don't get it because you don't want to get it. Whatever challenges you're facing in life, the Lord's invitation stands to cast all of your cares upon him because he cares for you. You don't need to wage war with the forces of darkness and become preoccupied with fighting them. You need to cling to Jesus and stay close to Jesus, the stronger one. So if you have burdens, if you have fears, give them to the Lord in prayer this morning. Give them to him. And remember, the path to blessing is through the words of Jesus in his word. Love his word. Respond to his word. Obey his word. It's not a coincidence that the whole book of Psalms, over a hundred Psalms, begins with these two verses. I put it on your outline. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. There's blessing in just being in the word of God, loving his word. We serve the almighty God. There's no one like him. There's no one on his level. He's greater, he's stronger, he's more powerful, he's more glorious than anything or anyone. And he lives inside of you and I. He lives in us. He's in you right now. His presence is there. Praise God for that. You don't need to leave here today with fear or uncertainty or anxiety. You don't need to leave that way. There's a standing invitation from God to give your cares to him, to give your battles, your struggles to him and rest in the fact that he's got it and he's got you. He's got you. Let's go ahead and pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Father, we just want to thank you this morning that you are the greater one you are the stronger one. You are the more powerful one than anything or anyone. And though Satan and his demons may dress themselves up to look bigger than they are, there is no comparison between your power 
and theirs. And Father, you've invited us to give every concern to you. Give us the wisdom. Give us the love for your word to actually do that. To actually believe what your word says. That you will fight for us. That we need only be concerned with clinging to you. With loving you. With putting our attention on you. Father, when something shows up in our lives that causes fear or anxiety, would you remind us through your Holy Spirit to not fix our eyes on that thing, but to instead turn our eyes to you? That as Peter experienced in the storm, Lord, we would find ourselves walking on water rather than sinking because our eyes are fixed on you. So in Jesus' name, Lord, I pray that right now you'd help us to release every burden, every fear, every stress, every anxiety to you. When we walk out those doors today, we would do so in total peace. Not because of who we are, but because of who you are. Lord, we love you and we trust you and our faith and our confidence is in you, Jesus. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.